Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello Bulls fans, welcome to Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode, one where we get to the most pressing questions concerning our Chicago Bulls. Was letting Max Strus walk to the heat a giant mistake? I, I Look, I'm personally kidding, but I know my my mates are Will the Thrill Gottlieb. I think you feel fairly strongly about this, this particular claim. Will, what are your thoughts? Well, look, people were getting all <laughs> caught up and emotional about the Jimmy Butler return and Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, but it was truly... exactly. The Max Struess revenge game. Exactly, uh, it was underreported. It was just shameful that it was didn't get um didn't get more traction. So uh, the, this is the most concerning element of uh, this Bulls Heat game that I that I or at least the takeaway that I had. And this is what I wanted to lead off on. Am, am I wrong in this? The national media presents us with these storylines, and it's our job as local podcasters of covering a certain team to really come with the facts, come with the true storylines that people care about. And for this one. You're absolutely right. It was the Max Drews coming back to Chicago. Is he from Chicago? I think he is. Just putting on a show. Look, uh, look this is what I, I aim to do with Bulls HQ is obviously give people the the best and most pressing, you know, news related to our Chicago Bulls. It certainly has nothing to do with, you know, Nikola Vucevic coming back from health and safety and looking bad again and people being mad at him or the fact that the team's half-court offense continues to struggle. Zach Levine had a bad game. The Bulls losing to the Heat. Like, people don't really care about that, do they? Like, I didn't see anyone at all complaining about Vucevic after the game. No, Vooch, uh, that actually, we should dive into that. Yeah, look, sarcasm aside, like, let's start there. Yeah, I think you and I are um, in alignment that Vooch is good and important to this team. He's been really bad. I don't think there's any two ways about it. But, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he, he can't be this bad, right? Well, uh, look, I, I assume not. I assume not. I, and I made this note yesterday that, I was kind of uncomfortable with some some of the, the the noise that I did see around Vucevic, particularly the fact that this that the Bulls essentially had three games in four nights, basically, the, and since since the Pacers lost. Um, obviously, this is Vucevic's third game back from you know having COVID a couple of weeks ago. We it COVID affects every single person differently, so I, I didn't really like the aspect that, that you know the fan base was going in on Vooch, which I, I understand because he's. You know, prior team going out with COVID, he was bad. There was a a ten game sample of him being quite poor, and I know this uh, fan base can be reactionary at times, but I don't know. Like, I just thought it was a, a little bit uncomfortable to see all that noise, given that you know we're just seeing this guy have COVID type thing, and I don't assume this can go on the rate that it will continue to go on because it like if for whatever reason this is just the new version of Vooch where he's just fallen off completely this is the new guy for whatever reason he's no longer the guy that we saw last season who was averaging like 23 points 11 rebounds 12 rebounds four assists whatever it may be like if this is just the new normal then this would be like an unprecedented decline in the in a matter of months so I, I just can't believe that this is the new Vooch I, I just can't believe it so I'm, I'm and I won't believe it to be honest with you yeah I think I mean the sample right now is just way too small to really take any major um jump to any major conclusions right i mean he's Mm. last year you know 20 plus points per game scorer 11 rebounds um and he did his numbers did decline when he came to the bulls i think the role obviously changed quite a bit um the team around him was 
not really funneling offense through him in a way that I think Orlando tried to do at times because he is really uh, a potent playmaker out of the post and obviously a scorer from the post. But I mean, to go from 24 and a half points uh, to 21 and a half points after from Orlando, Chicago last year, and now down to 13 and a half. Um, I mean, there's just no way he's shooting 40% from the field. Uh, he's definitely been bad. Um, I think there are some concerns that I would have outside of just the cold shooting, which are like the playmaking and the fact that he was super hesitant to, um, to shoot threes. And then when he did shoot a three, he hit the side of the backboard in a clutch moment. So, um, I think there's some stuff to be concerned about, but unless he like goes for an entire season and and probably even more than that, where he's just like not himself scoring and shooting the ball, um, I'm not really ready yet to start losing my mind because Wendell Carter had, you know, a 20 and 10 game against the Bulls. Yeah. And, and look, that was very, very interesting for me to watch that on, on look, the Bulls had a, a great win against the Magic um, and, you know, Wendell did his thing. So for me and my brand, like that was very good, but it is, it is funny to see some of the van, the fan base now start to talk about uh, Wendell in reverence and, you know, talk about how, you know, we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't have made that trade. Whereas, you know, 12 months ago, it wasn't even 12 months ago, only six months ago, everyone was like up in arms about how good this trade was. Wendell was a bomb getting in Vooch, all this sort of stuff. So it's just funny how time changes certain opinions. But look, Vooch has been bad. Uh, I think that there's no way around that. I, I, I don't really want to critique his performance since he's been back from COVID because I don't think that's fair. But, you know, the first 10 games when he was playing, he was he was largely bad. There was a couple of okay games in there, but for, for the most part, it, it was bad. But, you know... To me, like he's just one part of this thing. Like against the Heat, at least there was systemic issues that I think we should. We, well, I know we will touch on in this podcast, but to me, they're of a, of a greater concern than what Vooch is doing now. Obviously, you know we'll get into the half court offense and its effectiveness, and you know Vooch plays a massive play, a part of that, but he's not the only problem to this thing. Whereas I feel like at the moment he's being scapegoated by certain people. Let's say not not everyone, but look, let's let's talk about. Um, the half court offense itself, and the fact that you know, particularly against the Heat, I thought this team really struggled. And I know you had a great Twitter thread up earlier this morning, my time at least, about the the struggles that the Bulls have had from a half court offensive point that point of view. So let's start there because to me, it was very evident against the Heat that uh, this is going to be a problem for the Bulls going forward unless they can find a way to work it out. Yeah, I mean, I think if you just zoom out and look at what the Bulls do well offensively, mm-hmm. it's being the number one transition team in the league. I mean, yeah. let's just get that out of the way. Lonzo and Caruso, um, obviously Zach, Damar, like those guys are just scoring over a point per possession. I think it's actually over 1.2 points per possession, which is far and away the best in the league in transition. Yeah. So when you're able to get their hands on the ball um, and get live ball steals or blocks and get it, get out in transition, that just opens up the floor. It makes them look like a completely different team. But um, and I think part of the reason why there are still some skeptics or crit- critics about what this team has done and what they will do offensively is because the offense just doesn't really look like it's clicking on every cylinder. And um, I would say just like anecdotally, it doesn't even really look like they're doing that um, against man defense, but they are top 10. And I'm just setting stats here for my Twitter thread if you want to go take a look at that. But um, I think they've been fairly good against man defense in half court. But against the zone, they are scoring 0.8 points per possession, which is 24th in the league. Really, really not good. You see the ball stick, um, a lot of stagnation, which makes sense because I think, you know, a lot of the ways that they score in the half court is through isolations, right? It's Damar and Levine, um, either running pick and roll or getting isolation looks. And when you just sag into the paint, wall off the paint and prevent the Bulls from getting to the basket, it becomes really hard for them to create those advantage plays. So they're not getting as many kickouts to open shooters. The shooters are Derek Jones Jr. and Javante Green and Alex Crusoe, who, you know, are willing shooters um, and sometimes good, but I would not say that they're reliable enough to really take advantage of these zones. And teams have really honed in and, and loaded up on, especially DeMar and Levine when they're running these pick and rolls, they're either trapping them hard to get the ball out of their hands or, um, laying off and just making them hit tough shots, which they can do, but it has not really um, resulted in a lot of efficient offense. I walked away from this game being super impressed with the Miami Heat, to be honest with you. And 
I want to credit the Heat because whilst the Bulls run into issues and we'll, we'll obviously keep diving into those Bulls issues because obviously this is a Bulls podcast, but at the same time, we sort of have to tip our hat to the to the Miami Heat who've sort of exposed and forced these problems and we're good enough to to, to implement in the, them in the game. But you're exactly right. Like against the zone defense in particular, like this is where the game really flipped for me in that you know end of the third quarter, start of that fourth quarter period. The, the, the Heat implemented a zone defense. The Bulls didn't really have a good counter to it. And I don't know if they really do have a good counter to it just because of the, the personnel they have on their roster. Like you touched on it there, the fact that Zach and DeMar are fantastic offensive players. But before they do anything, they generally put the ball on the, on the, on the floor and then try to assess what they're going to do next. Whereas against the zone, you kind of have to pass through it and be you know prepared to, to get to the ball to spots where maybe Zach and, and DeMar initially set up them. And, you know, a further way to beat the zone is to have really good shooting. And again, you touched on the fact that, you know, if you do pass the ball around and you're kicking the ball out to Caruso or Derek Jones Jr. or, you know, even Kobe White was getting some good looks yesterday and Kobe's generally a good shooter, maybe sometimes an inconsistent shooter, but he was missing shots he should have made. So if you don't have a good enough shooting or that there's not enough shooting on the court, it, it really is tough to beat the zone. So um, I, I won't be surprised if we see more zone against the balls going forward. We have seen teams guard you know, specific units where it's only Levine or only DeRozan with a with a, a hard trap type thing where those guys are getting doubled up. Now, the Heat were doing the exact same thing. They were doing that within their zone, which was quite interesting as well. So I, I, I'm assuming this is going to be something that teams will continue to implement about, uh, against the Bulls. And right now, I, just based on how the roster is constructed, I, the only feasible way I, I think that they can get through this is by getting more out of Vooch and maybe playing him, playing him more against the zone. But obviously, like we touched about before, like he isn't playing very well at the moment. So he, to me, is the perfect counter against the zone. But I don't know, for whatever reason, the Bulls just aren't getting much out of him. So, I mean, what other options do they have beyond Vooch to get past or get through these types of zones. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit on most of it. I think they did find some success having um, Alex Crusoe flash up to the free throw line um, mm-hmm. or set and slip screens and play uh, playmaker um, kind of going mm-hmm. four on three in the short roll, which is great. Yep. I think he fits that bill as somebody who can make those decisions better than Derek Jones Jr. has consistently, or certainly Javante. Um so I think that has been one formula that they can, that was seemed to be successful last night and that they can hopefully go back to. Um, but I, I mean, there's two other ways to do it. Right. And you, you named them both. It's shoot over it and go through Vooch. Um, I think he's got to be the guy that can really like force teams to have to make decisions about how they defend. Right. So if he posts up, you got these hard doubles. And I think that actually had him kind of in his head a little bit where they were just doubling him basically on the catch. So anytime he would get the ball in the post, a second defender was either coming from uh, the baseline on the backside or right from the strong side wing. And he was just having to get rid of it right away. And I think that's really tough on somebody who is reliant on, you know, post scoring to, to generate his offense and gain confidence. He just like wasn't able to do that last night. And then he gets put in positions where he's just got to stand in the corner and shoot threes. Um, so I think he has to be somebody, and I think why he's so important to this team, as we talked about before, is his ability to make those decisions and pass as sort of an offensive hub from the middle of the floor. And so when you involve him in that way and let him make those decisions or just attack the basket, post up and score, I think the Bulls offense will um, not only look better, but it will be harder to zone against them because they have that ability to like just break it down immediately. Yeah, you, you need someone at the free throw line essentially who's behind that first line of the zone and in between the you know both lines of the zones to get in there and do their thing. And you mentioned Caruso, like he was really good at at, at doing that or fulfilling that role for for a number of possessions there. The Heat sort of cottoned onto it pretty quickly and maybe took that away, or the Bulls took it away themselves and, and didn't go back to it. I'm not sure you know what the ultimate cause of it was, but it, they worked it out for a three, four, five possessions, something like that, but couldn't really get it going there at the end. But yeah, look, I. Against a team like a Heat, I, I, again, like we have to give Heat the Heat the credit because they're an incredible defense. Like of all the teams the Bulls have played thus far this season, maybe beyond the Warriors, I think the Heat have been 
the most impressive team they've played. And I'll, granted, they haven't played the Suns at the you know this season, who have basically haven't lost in over a month. They haven't played the Bucks, so that you know there's, there's a couple other teams out there that maybe are better. But like of the teams that they have played, to me at least, they beyond the Warriors, they are the most impressive team just from a pure execution standpoint. So I just don't like the idea of really posting up Vooch against a team like the Heat. And I know Stacey kept banging on about it, how they have to get the ball into, into Vooch against mismatches and against PJ Tucker, how Pete, you know, he, how he's so much bigger than PJ and these sorts of things. But to your point, like the minute someone gets the ball against the Heat, they swarm so quickly. And, you know, you're getting doubled and triple teamed every single time. Like even when they're playing their man-to-man coverage, it looks like they're playing his own because they're just helping so frequently. So- And they're so long and they just, their yeah, rotations are man. so fast. It's like- so good. It's really hard to beat them. So I, I agree that like you can't just rely on Vooch, but I think also um, you have to be able to like beat that, rot- beat those rotations when the ball does get kicked out. Yeah. And there were a couple of times mm-hmm. last night, we're recording this on Sunday. So uh, they played Saturday night, but the rotations were just like really kind of lobby rotation passes and they just couldn't get a clean shot. Or there's one where IO had an open look on a reversal pass and just, threw it one more to Devante who threw it into the stands. Um, and so I think that they have a lot of room, not only just Vooch, cause he obviously does need to be better, but um, the rest of the group playing off of Vooch, um, you know, obviously he's been out for like 10 games or whatever. It's going to take some time to reintegrate. And uh, most of these players haven't played together beyond this season. So it's going to take some time. He obviously needs to settle into a role and just get some confidence back. I mean, anybody who plays basketball knows that, you know, if you're not shooting the ball well, you're going to be less willing to shoot it. So um, I think I think we need to be patient with him. And like you said, I mean, the Heat are such a strong team. You know, definitely, I would say, like one of the top four teams in the league right now, along with maybe the Suns, Warriors and Nets um, with the Bucks and, and the Jazz kind of hanging up there, too. So they've done well against some of these really good teams and you're going to lose some other games against great teams. But I think the key issue here is that it's become obvious to smart opposing coaches of what they can do to stop the bulls. And that's pack the paint, trap pick and rolls and go to zone. And I think what really matters here is trying to figure out how to bust all of those. Yeah, hundred percent. And it looks, in my opinion, at least suppose the best coach in the game, the zone wasn't the only look that he threw at the bulls. Obviously they had their standard man to man coverage where they, you know, they're switching everything. They have that ability to switch everything, which they were doing at, at points in the game. They were, you know, running full court, you know, man to man type defense, particularly when that second unit was on the court where, you know, there's not a lot of ball handling on there or at least plus ball handlers. So, you know, he's very creative. He's going to throw these weird and random things at you that make you think and, uh, you know, it could really put your team in a bind, I suppose. But at the same time, like to me, like fundamentally, like the, the half-court offense remains an issue and I'm sure it's going to be a topic that we keep coming back to. But what, another way to break the zone, I suppose, is just not getting in the half-court and the balls just couldn't really force turnovers yesterday against the Heat, which is going to be... Or not going to be it. It is a barometer for this team. Like you can tell straight away how the Bulls are going to perform based on you know their steal and block count. Like we saw in the first quarter against the Magic that the Bulls didn't really look like they were on it. But then the second quarter rolled around and Caruso and Lonzo were just you know went into complete dog mode or demon mode and started just stealing the ball from the Magic. And lo and behold, they start you know breaking out a lead to I think they had like a, a sixteen point lead at one point where they were just rattling off points because they were just turning up turning up everything on defense and you don't get the opportunity to or you don't force the defense to to get set in a half court if you're consistently forcing turnovers and getting in transition which we talked about before the Bulls are the best transition team in the NBA so like against teams like the Heat where who they're so damn good in the half court defense like you have to have your transition game going because you're not going to get free points from these guys and on the other side of the ball the Bulls had I think 22 turnovers and that is really uncharacteristic they've been Mm-hmm. fantastic at taking care of the ball um that's something that demar is really known for and why i think the bulls have been way more successful in late game scenarios this year as opposed to previous years where zach has had to be the one that makes a lot of those decisions i don't think he's particularly good at that and then on top of that you know he's the one that everybody is aware of that everybody is loading up on now you have demar to play off of he doesn't turn the ball over and you know you start winning some games and and sharing that that offensive load, but the the minute that you start turning the ball over 22, 23 times per game, it's just very hard to come back from that. And I think, honestly, all things considered, the fact that 
this was a close game throughout that it ended. I mean, Caruso, I think, had a three at the buzzer to cut it to four or whatever it was. But, you know, it was within 10 this whole game. And I think they did not play well. So I, I thought in some ways it was actually a pretty encouraging that they were able to just like scratch and claw their way into a close game and give themselves a chance at the end um, before that awesome ATO play from Spolstra, who I totally agree with is the best coach in the league to get that wide open layup and seal the game. Yeah, look, I look, that's the funny thing. And that was the takeaway that I had after the game. And even now thinking about it, when we're talking about it, like I'm just sitting here wondering, like, are we overanalyzing things? And look, I mean, that's ultimately what this podcast is here to do. Like we're, we're here to have a, just a general conversation and, and talk about these things that we see within the games. But at the same time, like this is just one game. Maybe I'm being a little bit pedantic about it. Like holistically speaking, not every team or not every defense that you're going to come up, up against is going to be as good as the Heat. Maybe you don't even see the Heat in the playoffs. So, you know, if for whatever reason you have a disadvantage against this specific uh, specific team like if you do run into them again in the postseason maybe it's a problem but hell you may not even see them in the playoffs um but I, I guess to your point like maybe we are over analyzing this thing like the balls had their issues in the half court zone or against half court zone defenses at the same time you had the turnover issue the heat hit 10 threes in the second half like gabe vincent uh, had four threes uh kyle lowry had three threes in the second half and some of those shots were contested less so Gabe Vincent's more so Kyle Lowry. Like Kyle, Kyle Lowry hit this this fadeaway three where Caruso was draped all over him and it still went in. So like some of these possessions and some of these plays, I suppose we we can analyze to the death. But to your point, like you only lost by a couple of points to a team that who I think is exceptionally good could potentially go to the Eastern Conference Finals, um, and you played literally twenty four hours before. So to to play a bad game and to be that close to the Heat, like in a way. That is kind of encouraging, and maybe we are, you know, being a little bit pedantic about this whole thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, what, there's like this tweet that's been going around about how the Bulls have played X amount of games and Y amount of days, and it's some absurd number, and they've traveled, and they're, you know, they've lost three of their last four games, but they've had a tough stretch. We knew November and October were going to be really tough months. I think, you know, they're 13 and eight right now. The Bucks have crept back up. They're now tied with the Bucks for fourth in the East. The East is really good. The East is really tight. I think they're like a game and a half uh, outside of being first place and two and a half games from being 11th. So it's tight. We knew it was going to be like this. Um, I think they definitely have a ways to go, uh, but we always knew that was going to be the case. And so I think it's it's good to be challenged against a team like the Heat because they are a team that you might end up going against in the playoffs. And, um, you know, you have, you have written down here um, in our notes, like, did Spo out coach Billy and the Bulls? And I think uh, it's good practice for him too to be able to see and react to like whatever other teams are doing. And it's not the same in the playoffs, obviously, where you have like every day to to game plan and prepare and adjust and tweak whatever your plan is to beat a team four times out of seven. The Bulls, obviously, and no other team in, in the regular season has to do that. But I think right now you're seeing a recipe that the rest of the league is like latching onto. And obviously, there are going to be teams who are tailor-made to execute this kind of trapping, zoning style that that the Heat were able to to uh, have success with. But it's something that the Bulls are now going to see from everybody that they play because teams do their homework. And so, I'm just curious to see. I think you know Billy's been fantastic in a lot of ways. I think he is he plays with whatever hand he's dealt. I think better than most coaches in the league. Um, but I'm really curious to see how he responds to this this pressure on the offensive side where, um, you know, this team should on paper have really efficient half court offense when you have two guys like Zach and like DeMar. So I'm curious to see how he responds to this. Yeah, look, we're 21 games into this thing now. So teams are getting a feel for each other. And look, we're not playing a playoff series. It's not like we're going up against the Heat seven times in a row or something like that. But nonetheless, like scouts within these specific teams are scouting the Bulls. And when it comes time for a team like the Heat to roll around against Chicago, then obviously these scouties or the scouts and the assistant coaches are, are game planning somewhat for this team. And to your point, like smart coaches like Spolstra will implement something funky. Uh, the zone sort of stuff was, was, I believe, something that we saw against the Pacers with Rick Carlisle to be fair I was half watching that game because it was a complete blowout so maybe yeah, I've got that out. wrong but I mean we saw the Warriors throw a box and one against um against Zach Levine I'm sure Nick Nurse has done some creative stuff or will do some creative stuff next time the Bulls play the Raptors so 
yeah, like we ha- we have to be prepared. And, and and I did note down that you know this this general thought that I had, like, did did Billy Donovan get at coached by Spo? And it's it's kind of hard to say because like so much of it is personnel driven, which again you touched on there. Like the Heat just have so many options defensively that they can throw on a team like the Bulls maybe a limited offensive team in some ways like the Bulls, like that the, the the versatility of that heat defense gives Sepulstra some, you know, the, the ability to do some creative things that maybe, you know, Donovan can't do with, with the Bulls personnel, for example. So it's always hard to say this guy out coached this guy or whatever it may be when it's so driven by, you know, personnel at times. But I don't know, I, I walked away from this game thinking I saw a lot of adjustments from uh, Eric Spolstra. I didn't see a ton from Billy. Uh, now maybe again like that comes down to personnel but it was just a thought that I have I still think Billy Donovan's a great coach um, I, I, I much prefer him to uh, to an our previous coach so don't get that <laughs> twisted anyone listening to this but it's just an interesting comparison to see like this Bulls team against a really good Heat team but also you know as a microcosm of that like Donovan versus Sepulstra. Yeah I think that's a really great point um, you know it, it's a game that obviously you want to win and you want to see the Bulls players outplay the Heat players. You want to see Billy, you know, out duel, out tinker Spolstra uh, from a coaching and X's and O's standpoint. Um, but, you know, given the fact that they had a really tough loss to Houston, which we don't really have to talk about because that was brutal. No. <laughs> um, and that just rough pacer game, that was a schedule loss that really, you know, they, they never had a chance of even competing in that game. Um, and then you come out and you just lambast the Orlando Magic, which they should do. They absolutely should do. To just have a game against a good team and be competitive, yes, there are things you can learn from it and take away from it. Um, and I think some of it is like real, and we need to like, you know, have a have a think about like for one, where was Zach Levine that game? I don't, I don't think mm-hmm. I saw him. Um, mm-hmm. But I think yeah, they played a good game against a good team. I think that's not a terrible. <laughs> Not a terrible takeaway. Yeah, and look, coming back to what I said before, like maybe being a little bit pedantic, overanalyzing things, and the fact that they were ultimately so close to the Heat, who again, like I said before, I really rate. You know, there is positives to be taken with that, but here I go going, you know, glass half empty type thing. But you touched not there, Levine. Like, I don't know if this was his worst game of the season. Maybe it was. I, you know, from a pure statistical standpoint, but. I don't really care what his numbers were in this game. Even if he had 30 in this game, like the way he approached this game was of concern to me a little bit. The The shot selection in particular is what I'm referencing here. And uh, it's been something that I've noted or monitored all season and probably more so on the Bulls beat than, than Bulls HQ. But I haven't really loved the way Zach's gone about it this season, which is kind of dumb to say given that he's averaging 25 with near 50, 40, 90 splits. And obviously the the thumb thing, I'm assuming that's still an issue for him. So there are some built-in excuses with the thumb. The numbers still read extremely well. He's still probably going to be an all-star. He's still putting up amazing numbers and he's still obviously a very damn good player. But like the shot selection at times this season, I think has regressed to the point where it feels like Zach from a couple seasons ago, not Zach from last season. And I just don't understand it this time around, like whereby previously you were playing with Chris Dunn or Larry Markkinen or Jabari Parker or, you know, insert your random bum here. Like you've got you've got really good players now. Like you got DeRozan, you've got Vooch, you've got a whole bunch of other options offensively, Lonzo, Caruso, etc. Like why are you taking really tough contested step back mid-range twos? Why are you turning down an open catch and shoot three from the corner to then take a, you know, dribble in a couple of times, you know, do a spin move in the corner and then take a fadeaway contested three-pointer like two seconds later after you've turned down the open three. Like there's just some bad decision-making going on from Zach from that standpoint, which I I don't understand. Like, whereas in years past, I would have defended him for it because like I, like I said, who are you going to pass the ball to? But this time around, like there are no excuses from that standpoint. So again, it feels dumb speaking about it because the numbers are so good. But I think Zach hasn't really been... He hasn't met my expectations and maybe that's on me because maybe they were too high, but I feel like he could be playing a lot better than what he is. Yeah, I think his numbers just from like a, a raw box score standpoint, like they would give you the impression that he's been playing at a super high level and super consistently this whole year. And I think, you know, to a certain extent he has been. He's very much like I I think it ties back to what we were talking about before. Like 
this team is still trying to figure each other out. And I think they've had honestly more success than I thought they would going into the season, right? They've just won more games straight up than I thought mm-hmm. they would at this point because yeah. of their schedule and because it's a lot of ball dominant players trying to figure out how to play next to each other. And I think you said it like Zach in the past has just been the guy that was his role. He knew what he had to do, which was go out and score all the points because nobody else was going to do it. And now I think he has the same kind of green light to be able to do that, but he also wants to make sure DeMar, you know, is getting his 25 and that Vooch is getting his post-ups and that Kobe White is coming back now and he needs to get some shots because he's a like all or nothing kind of shooter and scorer as well. So, um, you know, he wants to get to his spots and score when he has the opportunities. And I think he probably just hasn't like fully shaken off um, a lot of the like intense scoring burden that he's had over the past, you know, his entire career. Right. Uh, So I think that's all just to say, like, you see a lot of your turn, my turn, where Zach is like, okay, I'm going to defer to DeMar here and just let him go to the basket or let him pull up or whatever, or let's get into Vooch because he needs a touch. Um, And then now it's my turn and I'm going to take a like predetermined, you know, fake over my left shoulder and then turn over the right and shoot from 18 feet. Um, And I think you've seen a lot of that because he's just trying to, they're all trying to mix together and gel. And I think you just haven't seen it yet. And I think it matches with what we've said this whole time, which is that, the half court offense is not what we thought it would be. Um, and, you know, the things that travel and that you can count on consistently are Caruso and Lonzo's defense. And, you know, DeMar has been super consistent, but everything around him, I think, is just not quite where it needs to be yet. And that's okay because it's 20 games in the season and not 82. Yeah, you've definitely approached this with a C Red Will type approach, whereas I've gone, <laughs> uh, Doggable nation. <laughs> so, you know, I, I like that balance. But, you know, question without notice, and I don't have the cleaning the glass numbers here. I'm, I'm purely basing this on um, lineup data that the, the NBA has per their website or on off court data, I should say. And I was looking at this before just out of interest because we're, we're starting to get a, a bigger sample now. We're 20 games into this, and Zach, you know, Zach specifically has played 21 games uh, over 700 minutes. So that's like a, a decent sample. But in terms of on off splits, at least when on the court, like, from a, a team point of view, when Zach is on the court, the offensive rating of the team is 106.7, which is not very good. The defensive rating is a 106.6. So it's essentially the same. So it's a, let's just call it a zero net rating for, for Zach Levine when he's on the court. Whereas compared to the rest of the team or the rest of the starters, they're all up, you know, quite big in this. Like we, we talked about DeMar last week where I think, you know, the the ultimate net rating for, for DeMar was like a 17.8, something like that from uh, at least I believe it was cleaning the glass data. Um, you know, even Vooch has a plus net rating. Kobe White has a plus net rating. Lonzo, Caruso, etc. Now, so much of this is dependent on lineups and all those sorts of things as to who you share the court with when you are on the floor. So, you know, that that is the ultimate caveat and, you know, we need to dive more into that. But I was surprised to see that Zach is a uh, effectively a, a net zero at the moment when, you know, in terms of on-court data, at least, whereas, you know, virtually everyone else that matters within the rotation is, is a plus. Like the only guys who are negatives are like Io, Troy Brown Jr., you know, Alizé, Tyler Cook, these types of guys, guys that don't really play that much. So, uh, you know, question without notice, I suppose, but... Yeah. Is that a concern to you at all, that that figure? Actually, uh, I, I've just pulled up the numbers while you're talking, and DeMar is up to plus 22.3 on-off split. Uh, so that basically means like <laughs> the Bulls are plus 22.3 points per 100 possessions better with DeMar on the court versus when yeah. he's off the court. Zach is yeah. a team worst, minus 15.9, tied with Aya. And which numbers um, are these? Are these synergy numbers? or These are cleaning the cleaning glass. glass. Okay. So yeah, the Bulls are... 16 points per 100 possession worse when Zach is on the court uh, mm. compared to when he is on the court. When I'm sorry, when he is on the court compared to when he is off the court. Um, and yeah. I think we, we touched on it a bit last week of just what have the roles been, who has been playing against like starter lineups and DeMar perhaps playing more against some of these bench units. And I think that works for DeMar too, because he's more of a decision maker than Zach is. And so when he goes against these lineups, I think turnovers aren't as much of an issue and, you know, he takes care of the ball. They get efficient looks. Zach goes back to, I think, a lot of what we've seen over the past couple of years and why 
he has skeptics in the first place, which is that he does not seem to, uh, you know, he does incredible things scoring the ball, but it hasn't had a huge impact on winning. And so I think it's a lot of the same stuff that we've talked about over the years, right? Where he's just like going against elite lineups and maybe not necessarily playing with the Bulls' best talent around him. Um, I actually should look into some of the lineups before I say that. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly concerning. And I think, yeah, I think it, it makes me feel like he needs to be more of, um, he needs to be more supplemented when he's playing on the court. And I think um, this is another thing that I wanted to bring up, which is like how we create and utilize lineups. And I think uh, what it comes down to for me is that I want to see more uh, staggering between DeMar and Vucevic, where Zach mm-hmm. comes in with Vucevic and they play maybe more against those starting or A lineups. Um, and the offense runs a little bit more through Vuce. He gets a little bit more comfortable being that offensive hub that we talk about. Zach can play off of him a little bit. They get their go-to pick and roll um, and pick and pop that they're just really dominant with. And then, like I said, DeMar is coming in against more of the second units um, and being more of the offensive initiator. Um, maybe you pair, you know, Caruso or Alonzo with either of those uh, lineups. It works kind of either way. But I think that is kind of how I would like to see some of these lineups shake out. And I wonder, you know, I, I would have to look into like how much we're actually seeing that. But, you know, the, the Bulls starting lineup with all three of those guys has been awesome all year. So um, it, it does make me wonder like how staggering them in the middle of games is affecting these numbers. Yeah, and look, the irony of that is like that's how we started the season. Um, Levine and Virtue being paired together. DeRozan and Lonzo initially were going into that second unit with with Caruso, and then you know injuries here, here and there, changes in rotations. Obviously, Vuce going into health and safety, and those sorts of things changed things throughout that West Coast road trip. But Billy has made an adjustment over the last few games where. And maybe this speaks to what we just spoke to about you know, Zach Levine. Like Zach has been at times a lone starter out there with some of these reserve units coming in uh, towards the close of the first quarter, where he's out there with an IO or a Kobe, uh, you know, whoever it may be, Caruso, whoever you know, Billy's is sending out there, um, whether it's Javante or Derek Jones Jr. Like he, he's playing a lot of uh, of his minutes at this point with those guys, whereas. Some of the minutes with with the second unit, second unit, you will either were, you will have you know Vucevic, you'll have DeRozan out there with Caruso and and Lonzo and Kobe out there. Like we saw five man five man units against the Magic and the Heat with those specific lineups out there. So it, it really touches on both points, I guess. That uh, you know maybe some of the numbers that we're seeing with Zach relate to lineups, but to your point, like maybe it does make sense to split up Vuce and, and DeRozan, which it, it does make a little bit of sense because they do. I know they're very different players, but they do like to share some of the same areas on of the court together. And like I've I've been watching or just tracking Vooch just in particular, like on specific possessions, just watching him like intently and just only watching him. Like at times he does look lost when he is paired with DeRozan because DeRozan wants to get to that elbow, DeRozan wants to post up, and in those moments you kind of just watch Vooch who's I don't know, he's just sort of hanging around, doesn't know really where to be. So, like, the idea of pairing him with Levine makes a ton of sense. Obviously, uh, Vooch and Kobe had a a lot of synergy to close last season. I I don't know if you can do more to get them both going together. Like, that would be an interesting look as well. But, yeah, maybe they do need to to change things up lineup-wise. Billy has been doing that, unless he's prepared to throw it around. So, I'm assuming he will mix and match. But it, it has been an interesting development over the last three or four games since Vooch has been back that he has sort of been putting him more into the second unit. And maybe that's just been the way that Billy's been trying to get Vooch going is by having him go up against second unit bigs. I, uh, I'm pulling up some stats here that I, I'm not having like too much time to, to contextualize. So I, I want to throw these numbers at you and see what you think. And while you're talking, okay. <laughs> I'll pull up the other ones. But um, this kind of goes to what we were just talking about, right? Where uh, you have Levine on court, uh, DeRozan also on court. The Bulls' net rating is 5.6. That's awesome. Yeah. That's like that's, that's extremely of, good. you know, 50 win team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When Levine is on court and DeRozan is off court, you're down to a negative 10.8. 10. Mm-hmm. So very, speaks very to bad. exactly <laughs> what we said. Um, so react to that and I'll pull up the Vooch numbers. <laughs> no, no, look, it, it makes sense because typically, you know, Bill, this is something Billy's been really good at this season is it's generally having one of those guys on the floor at all times. And it, it kind of feels like when DeRozan is out there that he's armed with Caruso. And Caruso was the best ball that, that that we had on the court yesterday against the Heat. He's 
you know, maybe I don't want to say, he's obviously not the best player on the team, but in terms of, you know, two-way play, minute-for-minute production, the, how effective he is, how important he is, like he's right up there, I think, with pretty much DeMar at this point. So Caruso is super valuable. I'm assuming they, that, that DeRozan and Caruso share a lot of their minutes together and maybe Zach's not getting as many minutes. But, you know, to, to, to my point earlier, like it all comes down to the five-man lineups and who, who these guys are playing with. And at the moment, I think DeMar's probably getting the benefit in terms of who he's spending more of his minutes in those second units with. But um, yeah, I don't know how they mix it up, to be honest with you. It's it's it's, it's something for Billy to play with. Yeah, Zach and DeRozan have played 491 minutes together. Um, and Zach has been on the court without DeRozan for 237 minutes. So, mm-hmm. you know, definitely enough of a sample to be a little bit concerned. Um, while Zach is on the court with Vucevic, plus uh, 4.4 net rating when he's uh, uh, on the court without Vucevic minus 3.9. So again, just speaks to this idea that Zach needs a little bit of help. And I think that's why you go get a DeRozan, right? Like people this summer were freaking out because they overpaid to get a guy who is 32 and has never been a winner, whatever. Uh, Like at the same time, the whole argument is like Zach Levine is not somebody who can be like the offense unto himself. Like he needs a big wing initiator who can help him create and who can, who he can play off of. And you have this guy and the results speak for themselves. And then you have, you know, Levine on the court without those guys. And it's exactly what we saw last year. So it's not that surprising to me um, that you start to see some of these numbers. And I think uh, Billy will just need to continue to experiment and put the right support Zach needs around, whether it's Lonzo and Crusoe um, or pairing him with Vooch so that he already has, he always has somebody to take that scoring burden off of him. So, yeah, I mean, I think these are just like important numbers to call out as far as like how the offense is looking with certain guys on and off the court. Yeah, for 100%, 100%. I completely agree. And look, like I said, we're 21 games in now, so the sample is starting to get more meaningful uh, where maybe you could throw certain things out, you know, during the first five, 10 games, whatever it might be. Lineup data during those sorts of shorter samples are, are less relevant. But at this point, we are starting to get more and more uh yeah, more and more data. So, you know, we, we can use this and just, you know, make some decisions going forward. And, and like I said, I'm sure Billy will. I have no concerns about Donovan for whatever reason, looking at these things and or, you know, I, I initially speaking, I'm, I'm sure he's looking at these numbers. And when he is interpreting these numbers, I'm sure he's going to implement changes. And we have seen Billy make lineup changes, less so in-game. But, um, you know, after a number of games, we see him make these adjustments. He's clearly still playing around with these things. Uh, he had mentioned, I think, post-game either against the Magic or against the Heat yesterday, he had he had spoke about that maybe the starting lineup will change where Javante came back into the starting unit. Now that Vooch has been back, obviously Caruso had been starting, but, you know, it was asked and it was referenced that maybe Caruso goes back into the starting lineup, which again will have a flow-on effect with these numbers that we just discussed here. So... I guess the point is that even though we're 21 games into this thing, there's still a lot to be played and clearly the Bulls are still tinkering with things and it, it makes a lot of sense as to, as to why they would be, I suppose. But I, I guess, you know, coming back to, you know, putting my C red hat back on, Will, and taking it off you for the moment, like the, you mentioned the, the, the schedule and, and, and this is the... It's not really a stat, but um, for me, it's the start of the week, let's say. Uh, we're going to have a running segment here on Bulls HQ where we reference at least one interesting stat or one takeaway, and maybe we've already done that with all that lineup data that you just wrote it off there. Well, yeah, sorry but, uh, to like- just spew a bunch of numbers, but here I think uh, we're into a good segment here, so I want to I wanna hear where you're going with this. Well, look, I, and this comes keeps coming back to what I was sort of talking about with overanalyzing things. And, you know, in the moment when we have these losses or when there is these bad quarters or whatever it may be, like sometimes we lose perspective. But again, this isn't really a stat, more so just, uh, you know, looking at the schedule. But nonetheless, like over the last 16 days or at least 16 days leading up to the Heat game, the Bulls had played 10 games. So that's 10 games in 16 uh, 16 days, which is just insane. Seven of those 10 games were on the road. Three back-to-backs and most of those games being against plus 500 teams. So, uh, you know, as as critical as we want to be, as much as we want to dive, dive into lineup data, as, as much as we want to call out specific issues that, that we're sort of finding with this team, like we ultimately have to take a step back and just realize that the schedule right now has just been completely it's insane. Like the Bulls have the Hornets um, on Monday or Tuesday night, I think it is, 
you know, Monday night US time, I'm getting my days confused in terms of international time zone conversion, but that will be 11 games in 18, yeah, 11 games in 18 days, which is just insane. And then they'll have for the first time in like a month, their first like two or three day break. So like I said, as much as we want to get critical and dive into all this stuff and get analytical about it, sometimes it just comes down to guys being tired, guys not having enough rest. In the case of Vooch, literally coming back from COVID. So I guess we just always have to have that in the back of our mind that maybe there's larger things at play here. Like, it, like I mean, ultimately, these guys are human. Uh, I couldn't imagine playing 11 games in 18 days or anything like that, uh, let alone, you know, just the general pressure of being an NBA player. So so, so maybe we have to have the, that level of perspective, I guess, just being the foundation to all of these conversations. Absolutely. And like Kobe just came back. Patrick Williams has been out since like game five or whatever. Uh, Vooch missed a ton of time. So um, the Bulls are playing thinner than they thought they were going to be. Uh, they've had an incredibly tough schedule in terms of like just games in days, as you mentioned, but also they've played a ton of really good teams. So uh, yeah, I'm people have always uh, criticized me for being too harsh on the Bulls over the past several years of them being atrociously bad. But um, yeah, I, I'm willing to to stay patient and stay the course with this team because I think the the process is on the right track. I think they obviously have room to grow. Obviously, I would have preferred to win this game and not drop that one to the Rockets or uh, whatever it may be. But um, at the end of the day, like they're playing very well, and we've seen like I guess I'm looking at it more as like we've got these great building blocks, and now how it's, here's how we can continue to improve on them rather than like oh this team should be you know a conference finalist already. And everything less than that is not good enough because they just, it's a bunch of guys who've never played together before and they've got a lot of talent and they should be good and they are good, um, but there's still room to grow. Yeah, completely. And look, there's an opportunity coming up this week. The next game is against the Hornets, as I referenced before. That's a home game. They get a couple of days off before that, before they head out to New York to play the Knicks on Thursday evening and then have a game against the Brooklyn Nets against on, on Saturday night, excuse me. So like, I know that's the Nets, but to me, like these are three winnable games. I, I I don't really rate the Nets at least at the moment. Like to me, they they are more vulnerable than at least based on expectations. We've seen the Bulls beat the Knicks after a three day break. Like you should be able to maybe turn that up and get you know walking to New York and potentially steal a game there. And the Bulls should beat the Hornets. Like they're they're better than the Hornets. So like I, I don't I'm not predicting a three and zero week going forward, but. You know, there's an opportunity to grab three wins in a best case scenario, maybe even go two and one. So, you know, the Bulls have some games coming up that are winnable uh, against good teams. Thereafter, they play the Nuggets, the Cavs, and the Heat again. So, a, a couple other, you know, plus 500 teams coming up. But nonetheless, like, I'm, I'm still confident, irrespective of who the competition is, that they should be able to be going to these games and at least feel like they can get these Ws, which compared to last season, um, again, thinking about perspective and the, and the broader scheme of things like just just knowing that this team will turn up and play a fun brand of basketball and will win more than they lose like at the end of the day we should take some solace in that absolutely and um you know i think before the before the season we predicted that they would start four and oh they did so maybe we should call this three no stretch here against the hornets <laughs> uh knicks and nets um my hope for this team moving forward is as the schedule, I don't want to say it gets easier because, you know, they still got Denver and Miami and Toronto and Los Angeles and, you know, Atlanta coming up, but I just want to see them take care of business against some of the bad teams, get back to what they did at the start of that season to, to set them up for success in this stretch, right? Like you don't bank all four of those wins. And now all of a sudden, you know, because the East is so tight, maybe you're in the play in spot right now. And, and the whole narrative is different. So I think they need to get back to, taking care of business against some of these bad teams the way that they did against Orlando and banking these wins where they can. And then, yeah, you have these competitive close games with good teams and you see what happens. Yeah, 100%. And as we're seeing, you know, literally in a week, like last time we spoke, the Bulls were at top of the East. You know, three or four games later, you lose three of your last four and now you're sitting fifth or something like that or equal fourth. So it can change pretty quickly, particularly this season where the East is so bundled up. And I mean, the same is the same is true in the West, but specifically for the east like there's not a lot of games separating these teams as we referenced before so you know a winning streak may set you apart a losing streak may you know see you tumble down the standings but so long as you take care about you know take care of business as you as you should then um 
the Bulls will be okay, and I think they have a good opportunity coming up this week. So next time, we'll uh, I guess when we catch up, we'll be referencing or reviewing these Hornets, Knicks, and Nets games. Um, we've predicted it here three and zero. Let's see how, how close we get to that. The, the prophecy. That's the it. four at the beginning but, of the uh, season and the three right now, I believe, adds up to seven. So I'm gonna have to bring uh, that one up to, to, that Fred. To, to old Freddie. Freddie boy, if you're listening, we're probably not, but uh, shout out to Frederick. <laughs> but um, look, that just about does it for this episode of Bulls HQ, Will. Uh, again, thank you for joining me. Yeah, people, if you hadn't, for whatever reason, caught the last episode, obviously, Will, going forward, will be the co-host of Bulls HQ with me. So um, if you didn't get that news last week, if for whatever reason you didn't tune in, then obviously you're catching that news now. So Will, I'm uh, very happy for you to jump on again, mate. Um, how, have you, how have your first two weeks been? I'm assuming you're going to turn up again next week, but um, has it gone as well as you would have hoped? You mean uh, being back on the, the pod sticks? Well, yeah, well, and being a uh, co-host of Bulls HQ specifically. Oh, well, I'm, I'm assuming um, you're going to keep turning up. Yeah, no, I'm just leaving you after two episodes and I've moved on to bigger and better things. Just <laughs> kidding. Um, no, it's been great. I think it has, uh, you know, inspired me to watch these games a little bit more carefully and, and get back into that, which I love doing and which has not been easy to do over the last several years. So um, I think that probably leads into some of my um, cautious optimism about this team and where they can go is just because, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so much more fun to watch them and you know, you see the signs of them being able to be a really good team. And yeah, it makes me excited to to come here and hang out and talk about them with you. Yeah, look, I feel like 100% the same. Uh, having a good, team, a good team to talk about just makes this whole podcasting thing so much easier and so much better. And hopefully for listeners as well. I'm assuming you prefer listening to a podcast that's talking about a team that actually wins games unlike, you know, the last previous three or four seasons. So it's all good. Um, well, and a lot, as we said, we're, we're going to be back here next week. We're going to be talking about three straight wins against the Knicks, Nets and Hornets. So, um, we'll, 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 uh, we'll speak to the listeners then. Uh, catch Will on Twitter at Won't Godlib. Uh, you can get me on Twitter as well at M- MK Hoops. You can follow the show on Twitter as well at Bulls HQ Pod. Send us an email. Any questions you have? Any ideas for the shows? Anything that you want to throw our way? BullsHQPod at gmail.com. If you want to be part of the Bulls HQ Discord, drop me a DM on Twitter or you can um, get the invite link from the episode description of this podcast. Um, that pretty much gets all the self-serving plugs. Oh, oh of course, five-star reviews on uh, iTunes, Apple, all that sort of stuff. Uh, help my ego out, I suppose. I always like reading a nice five-star review or something like that. So if you do have a spare 10 seconds in your day, um, a five-star review would uh, would be Very welcome from us here at Bulls HQ. But like I said, three wins will be coming up. Speak next week, Bulls fans. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.